We are going to be in Galatians chapter 6 today. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and jump into there and uh, I'll give you a little background on where we're going today and, and what we're doing. As I mentioned earlier, we're starting this series called Better Together. And uh, for, the, for the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing on what we view as one of the key aspects and key ideas of who we are as a church. Uh, our goal as a church is not to just gather large crowds and get as many people together. I, I love seeing new people all the time coming to church, but our goal wasn't just to fill a coliseum with people or find the biggest room we can and stuff it with as many people as possible and let them hear one person speak on a Sunday. Our goal is really as a church is to connect people's lives together. And I believe what the Bible teaches and what Scripture teaches us is that as we connect our lives in a biblically-centered environment, that's where life transformation happens. It's when, when we get down in doing life together and our lives are intertwined together that we're able to, to really apply truth on a deeper level than, a, than in a group, a large group setting. And so we have a, a key belief as a church is that our lives are better Together, And so we want to focus the next few weeks on this. We'll be looking at a passage of Scripture today that's going to help us do that. Next week, as I mentioned, Jeremy will be sharing his story, and we're going to talk about how the stories of who we are and our life stories can impact one another. And as you hear his story, and you're going to be challenged to think about your story and sharing your story that you have power in your story, whatever it is. And then the following week, we'll have our church-wide brunch and talk about shared experiences, how when we experience things together, it gives us depth in our relationship. And then the last week of September, we'll be talking about how we eventually share our lives together out of Acts chapter 2, where it literally says at one point they... The believers sold everything and kind of lived as, as one. And we're not going to ask you to sell. We're not having a church-wide garage sale or, or yard sale that day. It's just this idea of what it's like when we actually take seriously this idea of doing life together. And so we're going to, uh, to begin today looking at how do we have this idea of a shared faith and beginning with a shared faith. The, the vast majority of the gospel uh, is filled with stories of not Jesus traveling to these large coliseums, these large venues, and speaking to these massive crowds. All right, you, you would think today, like when you think of the most popular speakers today, the most popular artists, the most popular musicians, like they go to these large venues and they gather huge crowds of people. They sell out MSG for three nights and they play to a crowd of people and that's how they get their message across. Now, Jesus at times spoke to large crowds. He did. But the vast majority of his teaching, the vast majority of his life was spent simply walking around and doing life with those that were following him. Think about it. You know, as he walked, he taught. As he did life, he taught. It wasn't just a sermon. It was a life and intersecting lives that he taught. Think about it. One day he walked by a fig tree. And he taught them what it meant to be a true follower of Christ, meant to be fruitful. One day in the, in the midst of a violent storm, he teaches his followers about true peace. In the middle of a death of a close friend, he teaches his followers about real hope is found. Jesus' biggest lessons were not usually taught to the biggest crowds. His biggest lessons were usually taught to the most intimate of audiences. Because he understood in those moments of knowing each other and doing life together, that's where it happened. But yet, in, even in spite of this teaching, in spite of these examples, 
we as people have this tendency to isolate ourselves, to keep a wall up between us and other people. Why do we do that? Now, for some of us in this room, the idea of doing life with other people is exciting. And for others, that idea of what we're talking about right now is terrifying. Like, it's just not who you are. But I want you to understand this morning that whether you consider yourself an extrovert, an introvert, uh, whether you consider yourself a party animal or a recluse, outgoing, or you can't stand people. Like, you're just just like, that's all I can do to be in here with this crowd this morning. Wherever you sit in this spectrum, we all still fear one thing. So even if you're the most outgoing person in this room, you can be outgoing that doesn't mean you're really doing life with other people because often we fear this one thing and what we fear is intimacy. We fear actually being intimate and being completely known by someone else. You see, doing life with other people is much more than just hanging out, throwing a party or always having people around. It is instead about letting people into your life, letting people into your soul, into your thoughts into your heart, into your dreams, into the real idea of who you are. It's being transparent with others. It's being vulnerable with others. It's being honest with others. It's exposing the innermost self of who you really are to other people. And that's a terrifying thought. The idea that I could completely reveal who I am, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is a terrifying feeling. You know, we're, we're taught in our culture, we're taught through past relationships, and we're even taught through other people to protect yourself at all costs. You know, we, we've taught, you know, guard your heart. Don't let, don't get too close to somebody. You know, keep it, keep people at arm's distance so they can't hurt you. We've been taught that. But I want you to hear this morning, this is completely opposite to what Jesus teaches. This is what is completely opposite to what Jesus modeled. Instead, he says, open your heart and your life. The more you insulate, the less you will experience love, peace, happiness, and joy. I want you to understand something this morning. As much as intimacy is scary, intimacy is also sacred. It's a sacred gift of God that he has given us to intertwine our lives with other people. I want you to think about how God is portrayed in the Bible. One of the ways that he's portrayed is in the Trinity. There's a three parts to who God is. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's this image of three working together to create a whole piece of one God. And there's depth and incredible. We could talk about the Trinity for, for hours and hours and maybe not fully understand it, but it's this picture of three making one. And I believe even in that picture of the Trinity of who God is, he gives us a picture of how we're to relate to one another. God, me, and you. That that's where true life and true meaning. It's not that when I just relate to God and that's all, all I do is I go isolate myself and I just study more and more. And I get to know God and get to know the depths of who he is. And that's all I'm about. It's not what he designed us for. It's also not that I just go out and I find every person I can have a relationship and connect and and even do well, even serve them and love them rightly and do great things. My whole life is about other people. It's not either or, though. It is both. God designs us to have a relationship with him and then through that relationship, have relationships with other people. It's a trinity 
of relationships. God, you, and me. Us and God. That's how God designed us to operate. And so we isolate sometimes because we think we want to protect ourselves. We want to not get hurt. Can I tell you, pain hurts. I'm not going to stand here before you and say, you know, a broken heart does not hurt. Or to tell you that when somebody betrays you, that's not painful. When somebody lets you down, when somebody disappoints you, that's not difficult to take. But the difference between actually experiencing even the pain of life and experiencing the depth of love and connection when we actually experience intimacy is a trade-off. I, I, I will never experience the depths of love that God designed me to do if I'm not willing to also maybe face the pain of opening up to that as well. And many of us probably sitting in this room have closed the door to our heart and closed the door to our lives because we've been hurt far too often. Can I tell you a reason, the reason we're usually hurt is because when we enter those kind of relationships, we're not entering them with the Trinity in mind. We're not putting God, me, and you working together. Usually in some way it's off balance. Either I become the center of it, you become the center of it. And we become off balance in some way. So what I want us to do today is this. I want us to begin a journey toward intimacy. Because it is, it's not just something I can tell you, hey, you should be intimate with one another. Expose your lives to one another this morning. Like that's not the step of growth. We have to actually journey toward that. And I believe this month as we look at doing life together, that we're better together, it's going to help us journey toward intimacy. And so I want you to see that intimacy first, intimacy first begins by realizing that you and I, as followers of Christ, have a shared faith. I'm not suggesting that this afternoon you go out to the park or go sit by somebody on the subway, some random person, and say, look, I was at church today. They told me to open up my life to other people, so I just got some stuff I need to share with you. And I just lay it on them. I mean, that, that, that might be interesting to watch, but I'm not sure that is what God had in mind here, is that we just pour our lives out to anybody and everybody that we come across. That's not it. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 1, verse 1, the very first word lays a framework for intimacy. Look at it with me. Galatians 1, verse 1, the very first word is what? Brothers. Brothers. It's this idea that we have this bond, this connection. There is something in our lives that connects. We're not strangers. You may look around this room and go, I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know every person, but all of us in here are on a, at least a journey in some part of our life to connect with God and connect with Christ. Whether you're investigating that or you're fully committed to it, we at least have some commonality with that. And as we grow in that bond and our depth of connection to Christ grows, then we see that pay off through deeper bonds. So the, the idea of brothers, like I think about in my physical life, my brother Jay, right? I, Think about this irrevocable bond that him and I have, this unbreakable bond. He's three years older than me, and so he's been in my life the entirety of my life. He had about three years without me, and he probably enjoyed those three years, and now he's like, I wish I could go back there. But anyways, we, we have this irrevocable, unbreakable bond. Time and distance 
do not break that. Just because he lives a thousand miles away does not mean that we aren't still brothers. We don't still talk and communicate. Even when we do things to each other. Even when we get upset at each other. I remember one day growing up, I don't even remember why I was doing I was thinking about this story. I was like, why did I do this? I think I just like to pick on my brother sometimes. If you have a sibling, you probably understand that. But like I walked into Jay's room one day and I had my hands behind my back and I was like, Jay, pick a hand. And he thought, oh, cool. You got something special for me. And he was like, pick this hand. And I was like, pow, and I just slapped him right in the face. Like, man, I just started laughing. And he's looking at me like, what was that? Like, why? And I was like, I don't know. I just thought about it. I thought it would be fun. And, and it, he was like, we ended up laughing on the bed. I was like, thank God that we were laughing about this because he's a good bit bigger than me. And he could have just, you know, stopped me. But I, even when we do random evil things to one another, we're still brothers. And I want you to think about it in this room. Even as we sometimes may disappoint one another, as we may fall short in our personal relationships with one another, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not going to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. We, we as a whole aren't going to be perfect. But when we approach life in this trinity of God, me, and you, and forgiveness and grace and all this flows, then we can experience the brotherhood and the sisterhood of faith. Let's look at the rest of this verse right quick, and we're going to jump into uh, some, some applicable teaching here. So Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So in a shared faith, the first thing we're committed to is this, reconciliation. We are committed to reconciling relationships together. What that means is this. If I'm angry at you, if I'm upset at you, if I feel like you've done something to wrong me, or if I've done something to wrong you and I know... I'm, I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to act like it didn't happen. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to shun you out of my life. It means that I am committed to reconciliation, to reconciling the relationship. How does that play out? The first thing it says there is what? Be quick to forgive. Right? It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in spiritual gentleness. One, be quick to forgive. This means be ready to show grace to others. Allow the grace of God to abound in our relationships in such a way that when a fellow believer is caught in sin, our desire is to restore them, not to ostracize them. What's our natural tendency? Right? Somebody does something wrong to me or we hear about somebody doing something wrong. We're like, oh, let me get as far away from that as I can. And Paul here in his letter to the Galatian church is like, no, when somebody falls short, when somebody sins, don't run away from them. What should you actually do? Run to them. Run to them. Because when you show them grace, when you're expressing grace to them, it restores them. But you're also reminding yourself of the grace of God that you've experienced. So when somebody sins, it's not our job to run away from them. It's not our job to excuse it either. What does it say we should do? We should restore them. And so that's what we're called to do, to reconcile. You know, our first response when we see sin in the life of others, remember this, is to run to, not run from them. The, the second thing he says here is not only be quick to forgive, 
That's an hour. What about us? It says we should be then slow to sin. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So the idea here is that we need to be on guard of temptations. Don't let the churches and your friends' willingness to forgive and restore you become an excuse for you to sin. As a matter of fact, with the willingness for others to forgive you should actually motivate us not to sin. Sin and forgiveness go hand in hand. Think about it this way. If there was no forgiveness, if there was no sin, there would be no need of forgiveness of sin. But if there was no forgiveness available, then there would be little restraint in the hearts of men and women to guide their behavior based on consequences of others. Right? I mean, we, sometimes we make decisions based on we know how this is going to impact other people. How this will be viewed by God, how this will be viewed by my wife, how this will be viewed by my children, by my friends, by my coworkers. And if there is no option of forgiveness, then you have no restraint. There's no need then. You can do what you want because I'm not going to be forgiven. So what? I've already messed up. I'll just mess up again. Forgiveness actually motivates us not to sin. The key thought I want you to grab here is this. We should strive to keep sin from ruling our lives while at the same time being really willing to restore those who have been captured by it. So guard our hearts from sin, but be quick to restore those that have fallen into sin. Guard your heart, but give forgiveness. Guard your heart, but give forgiveness. That's how reconciliation begins. That's step one on this, understanding this shared faith that we have in this journey toward intimacy. Now look at Galatians 6, 2 through 5. It says this, Now bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is, he is something, when he is nothing, he declares or deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbors. For each will have to bear his own load. The thing I want you to see here is this. In a shared faith, we are committed to interdependence. This idea that we are dependent upon one another. It's not just that we reconcile each other and be like, okay, I forgive you and you forgive me, but now we're these separate entities again. It's learning to realize that our lives are dependent upon one another. An interdependence doesn't mean that I am completely dependent on somebody else, right? It says that there's, each will be kind of judged by their own work. But understand, even your own work is not enough. It's, we need the work of others in our lives as well. And so here's what I want you to see is what this tells us. Is first be quick with compassion. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, This means be ready to meet the needs of others, even when it requires sacrifice. That's the hard part, isn't it? It's not being able to meet the needs of others when it's easy. It's meeting the needs of others when it really cost me. That's what compassion is. And this means in our spiritual lives, our physical lives, our emotional lives, showing compassion. I want you to see something this morning. Compassion isn't just solving a problem. That's not compassion. You come to me with a need and I meet that need and I'm done. That's not compassion. That's problem solving. Sometimes problems can't be solved, right? So Somebody comes and they're sick. 
We can pray for healing, but I'm not, I'm not, I can't heal them. Somebody loses a job. I'll pray for you, but maybe I don't have a job to offer or can't help in any of that situation. Sometimes we can't solve the problems. But in compassion, we walk with them through the pain, through the suffering, through the hardship. That's what compassion is, is that we bear the burden with them. You catch that in that verse there? It's not just that you take the burden away from them. That's not compassion. You bear it with them. You walk with them in any way that you can. That's, that's what compassion is. It is bearing burdens together. And we should be quick to do this, not wait until it explodes and people are in full crisis mode. When we see people with burdens, when we see people that are heavy, come alongside. Sometimes they may never ask. But it's still as brothers and sisters, we're to come alongside. So be quick with compassion, but then be slow with selfishness. It says there in verses 4 and 5 that, you know, don't think that you're better than other people. Now be on guard against personal preference and pride. Don't, don't refuse to help. Don't, don't think that, you know, wait till I have a, they've never done anything for me. I'm going to wait till they do something for me, till I help them out. That's what creates ice, isolation. It says we should be slow with selfishness. Don't move into that realm. And the key thought here is this. We should strive to keep the needs of others prominent in our lives while learning to develop a healthy view of ourselves. We want to view others' problems, have a, keep them in a prominent view of our life, and keep ourselves in a secondary view. Think about how that would work if we all did that. I'm looking at you, and I see your problems, and I'm making them prominent in my life. So let's, let's say I have a major problem going on in my life, and I share it with you. And you, everybody in this room would make that prominent in their life. All of a sudden, we've got 50, 60, 70 people helping to bear this one burden. And instead of me just putting it prominent in my life, my one problem prominent in my own life, and I'm the only one focusing on it, and I'm the only one carrying that burden, that makes it very difficult. And so as this cycle, it sounds weird, but as I make others' problems prominent and mine secondary, mine actually get more and more help because there's more and more carrying the burden with me. Don't carry your burdens alone. And don't make others carry their burdens alone. Galatians 6, 6 through 8 says this as we move on. It says, Now, one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, wherever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows of his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But those who sow to the Spirit will then from the Spirit reap eternal life. The thing I want you to see here is a shared faith. We are committed to unity. To unity. It says be quick to encourage. As we hear good things, we're to share them with others. God's not mocked. Don't just hold on to stuff. God is teaching you. Use it to teach others. This means be ready to build up others with words and deeds. It is so tempting to crave encouragement, yet never give encouragement. And I I will say I'm guilty of this very often. Katie reminds me of this many times that I 
I think I'm encouraging people, but really I'm encouraging them maybe the way that I like to be encouraged, not the way they like to be encouraged. And so it's not just, you know, I, I like to receive gifts or I like words of kindness. And so it's not just giving, it's thinking for them. How can I specifically encourage them? It's adding to support to someone's life. That's what encouragement is coming alongside and adding support. When you plant a brand new tree, a young tree out here, what do you do? They, they put these boards alongside that are anchored into the ground to give it support and give it the ability to grow. That's what encouragement literally means is that we come alongside, we add support to others' lives and give them the ability to flourish and grow. So be quick to encourage, but then be slow to criticize. Here it says be slow to criticize. Be on guard for the desire to demoralize and destroy. It says, for those who sow in their own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But when one sows in the spirit, from the spirit they will reap eternal life. It's not that we're to use words to tear down people. Instead, use words to build them up. Now, I want you to understand criticism doesn't mean that we can't speak truth into people's lives. Sometimes things are going on and we need to be able to say, hey, that's just not right. Point out problems. Doesn't mean that, again, we can't communicate hard things, but it's done with the intent to help them grow, not to destroy. Criticism can be used in one of two ways, can it? Constructive or destructive. You can help people grow, or you can just literally rip their life apart. And the key here is this. We should strive to find value in our lives by learning to invest in others instead of using others. God did not give us relationships to use for our own benefit, to only impact us. He gave us people and relationships in our life to invest in and to grow them. I want to close with, with verse 9 and 10. And the last thought is this. As we look at verse 9 and 10, it says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. So a shared faith finalizes when we are committed to community. We're committed to doing this life together. And what does it say in verse 9? Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up. Be quick to serve. This means be ready to do good at every opportunity. Regards to physical, emotional needs in people's lives, whatever we can do. And this comes out of a heart of unity, a heart of compassion, a heart of authenticity and transparency with one another. That We don't get to this point if we haven't embraced the first eight verses of this chapter. You, know, you, you will grow weary in doing good if you're not embracing the first eight parts, eight verses of this chapter. So don't grow weary, but be quick to serve and be slow to separate from other people. Be on guard from our desire to isolate and insulate ourselves from others. Our, we as people are just like this. But I think New York adds fire, adds fuel to this fire. We, we, are, we live in a city where it is so easy, even in millions of other people, to live isolated lives. We can walk down a street and we can act like nobody else is there and put our earbuds in and just go about our business and forget that anybody else in this city even exists. 
We, we can live on uh, our apartment floor and not get to know our neighbors. We can live behind a closed door the whole time. We can find ways to isolate. And that's not what God has called us to do. He says their universe, he says, do good to everyone. So he's like, you don't get to pick and choose, but especially to those in the faith. So I want to encourage this. Even if you're not willing to connect with other people right now, would you at least be open to connecting your lives with people who hold some of the same values as you, are searching on the same faith path as you, and let God begin to show you how life is supposed to work in that trinity of relationships. The key thought is this. We should strive to build relationships that bring encouragement and accountability to one another. We should have relationships that bring encouragement into our life, but also bring accountability into our life. I, I'm tempted just like you to isolate. I'm tempted just like you to be selfish, to, to separate, to criticize. Those are all easy things to do in my life. I was in Times Square yesterday. I don't, I don't enjoy a visit to Times Square. We had friends in, and I'm like, okay, we'll meet you there. But they're like, we're going to spend all day here. I'm like, oh, let me pray for you. <laughs> and uh, and I, I'm literally, we're walking to meet them. And, you know, I mean, you walk in through Times Square, people are like, oh, my gosh. They're just walking down the sidewalk, oblivious to other people. And I'm literally walking. I'm like, I'm having to make this mental decision. Am I going to bend the shoulder or not as I'm walking, right? I mean, you've had that choice, right? You see people coming at you, and you're like, well, I can just, you know, I can see. I could, like, I could pop them with a shoulder. Like, I, could, I could spin them good. Like, they're just not paying attention at all. But I'm walking, and I'm... Like, I already prepped this message, and I'm like, oh, i got to bend the shoulder. Like, I have to, like, okay, go by. Like, you have to literally set yourself aside. And that's almost what I'm asking you to do to take step one today. I'm not asking you to run out and let's all give each other huge hugs at the end of this sermon. That's not what I'm asking. But would you at least relationally begin to just bend your shoulder a little bit? Give people a chance. Open up your heart just a touch so that relationally you can begin to understand what it means to have God, you, and me working together to see how this life is truly better together. Would you pray with me?